Well, good morning. I am not Kyle, but I am here to preach. Uh, take God's Word. Go to Acts chapter 4. Now, it's hard to keep up with uh, the way God has blessed Liberty Baptist Church. Kyle did preach in here at 9.15. I preached in the East Venue, and now I'm here at 10.45. So you just never know between Kyle, Brian, and I where we're going to end up. But uh, I want to thank you on that end to a church family who has a heartbeat to enable us to uh, disciple even those that God has already called out and placed on our staff to preach the Word of God and given us the, the blessing to be able to do that freely and uh, be able to hone those skills of the man that God has called out. So thank you for that. You've got me. You're stuck with me. And uh, so for the next, uh, Trey said, 45 minutes, then, then I can uh, <laughs> preach to you. Here's what I learned at 915 East Venue. I preach too long. Your benefit is it won't be that long. And so we're going to go to Acts chapter 4 as we continue our series on measures with the uh, title, More Like Jesus. At Liberty, we have identified six marks of a disciple. And these marks of a disciple help us with clarity define what is a disciple. If our commission, and it is, is to go and make disciples, and that's our mission, that's what we're committed to, then we need to have clarity about what that looks like. And so these six identifying marks help us have clarity. And we've gone through three. Today we're going to do measure four, and we have two more weeks because we have six measures. So uh, a disciple, a follower of Christ, one is a child who knows God. Number two, a disciple is a student who lives changed. Last week, we talked about that friend who really loves others, set apart different kind of love. Today, as Spencer pointed out, we are a helper who gives generously. And then next week, that messenger who goes boldly. And finally, that God who shows the way. And so these measures are designed for us to have clarity about what is a disciple. These measures also help you and I as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to be able to measure ourselves against the example of Christ as to how we're doing today. How are we doing as a helper who gives generously? Do I understand that, that God has uh, redeemed me by grace through faith in Christ? And is my heart full of that gratitude? Here's what I know about the people of God. Those who have truly been born again are grateful to God for His grace and salvation through Christ. Amen? And grateful hearts always are generous hearts. And so as we grow in these measures, we grow to be more like Jesus. And as we grow to be more like Jesus, we grow to be more generous. Now, for some, generosity is easier for some of you than it is for others. But this applies to all of us. Even the most generous heart in here today is not measuring up to the heartbeat of our Savior who emptied himself and became obedient even to death, death on the cross, giving all that he was and all that he had in order to rescue you and I. So we still have steps 
to take in order to grow in these measures as we pursue a Christ-likeness in our life. Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to learn about this measure. And, uh, and, and Dr. Luke writes not only the gospel narrative, but also the Acts of the Apostles. And as he points out in, in the book of Acts, 28 chapters, Dr. Luke is showing us the, the gospel advancement in and through these early followers of Christ. Uh, the 28 chapters of Acts show the gospel going from Jerusalem to all Judea and Samaria and to the surrounding world. Uh, as we study, if you study Acts, you realize that it begins in Jerusalem, the capital city of the Jews, and it ends in chapter 28 in Rome, the capital city of the Gentiles. It begins with Peter being prominent on the scene as a proclaimer of the good news of the gospel, and he is an apostle to the Jews, but it ends with Paul being front center and focus as he is an apostle to the Gentiles. And so we see the gospel movement advancing throughout Acts. And Acts 1.8, you might want to write down uh, somewhere, Acts 1.8 is a key verse for the entire book. Really, I think it's a general outline of, of what's happening in this gospel movement as it goes from Jerusalem uh, to Rome, literally to the known world at that time. And so Acts 1.8 reminds us that, that we were told, uh, these early believers were told that when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power, dunamis. You shall receive that explosive kind of power that enables you to be a witness in Jerusalem, and then it's going to advance Judea, Samaria, and then to the surrounding world. So Acts 1.8 is the model. It's what we see happening in Acts chapter 4. Uh, in this book, Dr. Luke regularly shows the church on the move, advancing Jerusalem to Rome. But every now and then, he gives us a snapshot of community life among these believers. Chapter 2, verses 42 and following, we get a snapshot of their life together, things that were important and priorities to them. Now in chapter 4, 32 through 37 that we'll read in just a moment, it's a snapshot of how they live life together and some things that, that rise to the top. And what we're going to see that rises to the top today is their unity in Christ and their generosity with one another. And so here's what we know to be true. Those of us who are in Christ uh, are growing to be more generous in our life as we grow to be more like Christ. You're going to see that fleshed out in these believers. Uh, one of the prominent themes all the way through the 28 chapters of Acts is this community of faith being generous. The, the church is called to be kind to everyone and, and generous in some ways, but particularly to those who are in the household of faith. And we see this illustrated beautifully through Acts. Hearts that are unified by the gospel mission naturally overflow with generosity. And you're going to see that in action in Acts 4. If you're able to stand, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word and keep you awake for my 45-minute sermon. It would help if I get out of Zechariah and go to Acts. There we go. Dr. Luke says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, 
but they failed, but they, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each one as anyone had need. And Joseph, or Joseph, who was surnamed Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, let me set your mind at ease. This is not a command that every child of God sell your houses and your lands and brings the money and lays it at the preacher's feet. It's not. So you can breathe and know that, that that's not the universal command. What we're looking at here is the heartbeat of a community of faith of generosity. Now, some of the things that they did as this church was scattering, mainly because of persecution, as believers who surrendered their life to the authority of Christ, it cost them. Sometimes it cost them their homes. Sometimes it cost them their family. Sometimes it cost them their jobs. So in this growing, exploding number of disciples, there were those who had much, and there were those that did not have enough for their daily needs. And the beautiful picture here is because of the gospel, those who had much were more than willing to share with those who didn't have enough. And so we're going to look at three fundamental principles of generosity that is evident in living out their faith in this early group of believers. Let me pray for us, and then you can be seated. Father, teach us what we need to know. And by your Spirit, Press in on our lives where we struggle with selfishness, with greed, with just narrow-mindedness, not understanding what we need to know. And Father, I pray that you will draw us close and make us more like Jesus. And as we grow to be more like Him, we know that we will grow to be more generous as you lead as we have opportunity, according to your good purpose and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Spencer read at the prayer time the, the statement, the paragraph that we use at Liberty for the helper who gives generously. I was reading over my sermon notes this morning. I said, oh, no, because the statement that says you give generously and cheerfully considering a joy to participate in the work of God, here's what my note said. You give nervously and cheerfully. And so I nervously and immediately went and started checking sermon notes. Did our secretary, did our, did our administrative assistant catch that? Somebody caught it. So uh, it is good to have those who proofread behind us. But it, there's some truth to that. Some of you give nervously, even though you give cheerfully. But the statement should be generously. And so thank you, Helen, for catching that mistake right there. But um, as followers of Christ, we're called to be helpers who give generously. And again, the more like Jesus we become, the more generous we will be. Like Jesus, willing and even compelled at times to come alongside of others who have needs. This involves a committed surrender 
of all that you are and all that you have to Jesus. Let that sink in. All that you are and all that you have. The only way we come to Jesus is in total surrender. Palms up. It's total abandonment. I can't save myself. There's not enough good in me. I don't have enough money. And God owns it all anyway. I can't give him anything that he doesn't have. And so the only way we're born again is total surrender. Once we are born again and we surrender to the authority of King Jesus, here's our struggle. We have to learn every day what it means to live under the authority and lordship of King Jesus. In other words, I have to learn what does it mean as I surrender my all, all that I am and all that I have for Jesus to be master lord of my time, my time management. Well, what does it mean for me when I surrender to Jesus of how I invest the gifts and abilities, my talents that he's given me? And what does it mean to understand that financially all that I've got, it came from my sovereign God. It, it came from a God who enabled me to receive it. And what does it mean to surrender that back to him and be ready and willing when the Holy Spirit taps me on the shoulder and says, I want you to invest part of what you have in order to impact others for the sake of the gospel. Time, talent, and treasure. And truth be known, none of us have arrived to where when the Holy Spirit taps us on the shoulder, it's always without resistance. Because honestly, there are times that I resist. There are times that my time of what I was planning on doing and where I was planning on going and what I needed to do from my perspective... The Holy Spirit will interrupt that day. Will I obey? There, there are times that, that God has opened doors of opportunity. He's called me to preach, and, and he's given me some ability to proclaim his word. And, and there are times when God opens, door, opens the door for me to go and use that giftedness that he's given me, that it gets me way out of my comfort zone because it just scares me to death. Am I going to be willing to step out in faith and go where God leads? There are times when God asks me to give above and beyond. Now, I'm, I am consistent and committed as giving my first fruits to the Lord and more than a tithe to the Lord through his local church. And I was blessed to be reared by godly parents who instilled that in my life as a young kid. And I'm thankful they did because it's a lot easier as an adult to make that decision when you grew up doing that. But am I going to be willing to take some of my stash money for me? What I've, I've folded up and put in my billfold that, that I might use on hunting. It, our days are numbered. We're coming to an end. Am I willing to give above and beyond? Or am I going to resist? You see, our life as disciples is learning more daily to live under the lordship of Christ. And as we talk about all these measures, six of them, there are areas that we're going to struggle in, have pushed back in, and those are the very areas that I pray the Holy Spirit will just grip your heart, lean in a little bit, and grow you to be more generous for his glory, realizing all that you are and all that you have came from him in the first place. We're called to invest it back for his glory. Now, let me balance that a little bit. It doesn't mean that, that you have nothing and you don't enjoy what God has given because Scripture is very clear that, that God blesses some people 
And those who are blessed are blessed in order to be a blessing to others, certainly. But God blesses each and every one of us that we may enjoy the blessings that he gives. But it's not just about you. It's about the mission he's called us to be a part of. And so let me just back up a little bit before we get into the Acts 4, 32 through 37 and see what's leading up to these events because I think it's important. Chapter 3, Peter and John in verse 1 went together to the temple in the hour of prayer. There was a crippled man, lame from birth, begging for alms. That's the way they did it. Somebody carried him to the, uh, near the gate uh, every day, and he relied upon others giving to him in order to survive. And he begged from Peter and John, and this is the famous uh, story to where Peter says, silver and gold have I none, but what I do have I give in the name of Jesus, rise and walk miraculously, supernaturally, the power of God healed that man that had never walked. And he began to jump and leap and praise God because his life had just been radically changed. It created a stir. And as Peter and John went to the temple, they began to talk. And here's what old Peter, yes, the guy that denied him three times, the guy that often opened his mouth and inserted both feet, the guy that didn't get it right so many times, he got it right here. He began to preach to everyone there. Look, don't look at us as something special. It wasn't us. It's by the power of the resurrected Christ that this man, crippled from birth, stands and is praising God with you today. Well, the religious leaders got in a stir, and chapter 4 begins with Peter and John being arrested. As they began to speak, the priest, the captain of the temple garden, Sadducees, came, confronted them, arrested them, kept them overnight. And then verses 5 through 12 in chapter 4, Peter defends himself and John before the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of that day. Filled with the Holy Spirit, what did Peter do? He defended his actions, and then he boldly proclaimed to those who made decisions to crucify Christ, he boldly proclaimed this Jesus whom you denied, whom you crucified, by his name and power, this man has been healed. And so Peter let them know there is salvation nowhere else save the name of Jesus. Where did that boldness come from? Can I take you back to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive power to be my witnesses. That is living out that faithful witness as Peter was in that point was a messenger going boldly. Verses 13 through 22, Peter and John are eventually released, but the religious leaders saw their courage. They were astounded at how they spoke so boldly and profoundly. Why? Because they were ordinary guys. They were unschooled, but they were scared, the Sanhedrin was, of the crowd that were praising them because of the miraculous work that had been done. So they knew they could not harm Peter and John or it would be a bigger problem. So what they did is threaten them. Do not teach, do not speak this name of Jesus and about a resurrection junk anymore. If you do, we will. What did Peter and John do? When they got released, verse 23 and following, they went and gathered with their people, their group of believers, and as they shared with them everything the, the Sanhedrin had said to them and the threats that they made, they prayed. That's a good time to pray, right? And so what did they pray? Here's the interesting thing. They did not pray our prayer. Oh, God, help me and deliver me and get me out of this mess. They said, God, 
you're aware of their threats. Now give us boldness to proclaim the gospel. And then, as it ended in chapter, in chapter uh, 4, as it ended right before our text, the place that they were in was shaken. And the power of God filled them, and they spoke the gospel, the word of God, with great boldness. That's the context that we step into. And what we see Dr. Luke doing often in, in the book of Acts, he's showing you the church going, going, going on the move from Jerusalem to Rome. That's on the move. But every now and then he gives us a snapshot of the church gathered. And that's the dynamic of the local body. We gather and we're equipped and we're inspired and we're encouraged by one another. And then we scatter and live our life out on mission. And so they have been scattered. Now they're gathered. And Luke takes a snapshot of community life. Three fundamental principles about living out our faith in generosity. If you have a print copy of your sermon notes, uh, you can start filling in the blanks. If you try to pull us up on the app, you may find the good outline of last week's message. So if you're an out person, you might want to get your pen and piece of paper out and write them down. So what are three fundamental principles for living out our faith as helpers who give generously? Number one, realize your gospel identity. Your gospel identity. According to the text, this community of believers was marked by unity. Here's the phrase, of one heart and soul. This group of believers represents a beautiful portrait of how the church should be, how a congregation of God's people should approach our mission of making disciples and proclaiming the gospel, of how members of the body of Christ also should relate to one another. So the question is, not that they had unity, but what kind of unity? And so we can sum it up and just say this, they had gospel unity. Here's what brought this diverse group of people together. What brought them together was the realization that it didn't matter what tongue you spoke, it didn't matter where you came from, it didn't matter what color of skin you were, that we're all sinners in need of a Savior. And so when they surrendered to Jesus and they turned from their sin and put their trust in Christ, when they were born again, they were born into a family that was bigger than them. A family that was diverse in speech, a family that was diverse in race, a family that was diverse in background beliefs, a family that was diverse in their own family backgrounds. But what they had in common, we are all sinners saved by grace. The ground at the cross is level ground. And so what we need to understand is that as we come together and gather as a local body of believers, we're a diverse group, diverse in age, diverse in occupation and vocations, uh, diverse in how we were brought up, uh, diverse in, in many, many ways. But what we have in common is every single one of us who is a child of God is a sinner saved by grace. That's it. And that gives us unity. That gives us a common ground to begin. But also, what we have in common is a mission called the Great Commission. That as we come together in Christ, we're to be mobilized to be an army for Christ. And we are to live out our faith, making Christ known and making disciples, helping people grow to be more like Christ. 
And another thing we have in common is none of us are there yet. So we talked about salvation and sanctification. Salvation is that point in time that we surrender to Jesus and we turn from our sin, put our trust in Him. But at that point of salvation, we begin a journey of growing to be more like Christ in character and conduct. That's called sanctification. So the reason that we gather is to help remind ourselves of our gospel identity, who we are in Christ, and remind ourselves of the gospel mission, what God has called us to do. And to be reminded, because we need to be reminded, everything about you, all that you are and all that you have, came from Him. And what He calls you to do is to invest your life, your time, talent, and treasure for His glory. And be willing to do that, that as we go, wherever we go, when opportunity is there, that we are willing, like King Jesus, to be generous and compassionate and help meet the needs of others, beginning with the household of faith. So that gospel identity brings us together. I I like uh, verse 32. It says, now the multitude of those who believe are now the entire group. Back in verse 4 of chapter 4, it tells us that after Peter and John were arrested, about 5,000 believed. So what we see throughout Acts, that's a lot of numbers. And those numbers are counting people. And they're counting people who have been changed by the gospel and people who have souls that have now inherited an eternal home in heaven. And so, let me just say, church, just up front and quick, when we talk about numbers, we're not out of sync with Scripture. Because numbers are important, and numbers are important because they're people who have names, who have souls, who need Jesus. And I love celebrating those who have heard, received, and surrendered their life to King Jesus. I love celebrating what God does in and through. And imperfect people like you and me, when we take next steps of obedience, I love it when the light bulb comes on and there's an aha moment of who I am in Christ. And we realize, really, my goal every day is to bring God glory by living in obedience. And and that's being sensitive to how he calls me to invest time, talent, and treasure. And my obedience is going to be the big question. The presence of such unity was found in Acts chapter 4. It's astonishing when you consider the background of these people. Don't miss it. In chapter 2, we learned they were from every nation under heaven. And it's there that the gospel was presented. And it's there that people from every nation under heaven uh, surrendered their life. Everybody wasn't saved, but a lot of them were. And it's go, it continues to grow. And it goes from Jerusalem, Judea, even Samaria, the half-breeds and the hated ones. The gospel went, they heard, they surrendered, they believed, and they were born again. Diverse individuals being united in the gospel. Our strongest source of unity is not our common affinities. It is our gospel identity. How in the world is it that maybe 10,000 plus people are unified? It's simple. They believed the gospel and were united in Christ. How are we, a Liberty Baptist Church, soon to be 178 years old, how are we unified when we're diverse generationally, when we're diverse in, in our backgrounds, and, and not everybody grew up Southern Baptist. I was Southern Baptist nine months before I was born, but not all of you were. 
What brings us together? It's the gospel truth, and it's the gospel mission that links us together for his glory. Does that make sense? These believers, there were two things that just really stood out. First, they were so preoccupied with ministering to each other, they didn't really have time to think about selfish hoarding things um, and, and living for themselves because they were on the move. And if they heard of a need, there were people in that congregation that were able and willing to sacrifice and help meet that need. Not only were they looking at one another and loving on one another as Christ had loved them, but they were living on mission. And so that, that other's mentality and that missional living uh, put them in a mindset where they did not have time to be selfish in their thought. Just a note about verse 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Great power, great grace, mega, mega power, mega grace. Acts 1.8, and when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall receive what? Power. That, that, that uh, we get our English word from the Greek word dunamis, and, and the English word is dynamite. It's explosive power. Acts 1.8 has it, and it's used here that they preached with power. What were they preaching with power? That Jesus was alive and well, that Jesus died and he was buried, but on the third day he rose again. And in the name of Jesus, he can save and rescue your soul. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile or Samaritan. It does not matter if you're in, in Jerusalem or eventually Rome, that Jesus is the Savior who can rescue you. And he's the only one. And so as they preached, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they preached with great power. But what happens when you preach the gospel, the good news of the gospel, people hear and believe, then there's great mega grace. What happens when you're saved and I'm saved? Our eyes, as we see others, is different. We can look around and we can see how diverse we are, but you know something else about the body of Christ? There's some strange birds that make up our family. Do you know not every one of us is easy or to love and get along with? Any of us at some, any given time can be hard to get along with. So you know what it takes? Mega grace. Mega grace. What we acknowledge is we're not a perfect people. And don't expect a brother or sister in Christ to do for you what only God can do for you. And don't expect a brother and sister in Christ to measure up to the perfection of Christ yet. Because we're all making progress, striving to be more like Christ until we see him face to face. Gospel identity, but number two, we see that they uh, had a mindset for others, others' mentality. Luke tells us who shared in this community of faith. That word everyone is there. No one claimed that anything belonged to him. Here's what it meant. They understood the teaching of Scripture that God's creator and owner, and we are stewards of anything that we have. Time, talent, and treasure, we're stewards over it. So who shared? Everyone as they had opportunity. Now, you don't have to have an overabundance of money in order to be generous. 
I tell you about Miss Pelham often that my first church while I was in college in Atmore, Alabama, in the shadow of Holman Prison, before this schoolboy and preacher boy would go back on Sunday night uh, to get ready for school the next week, oftentimes she would ask us to come. And they had a cabin on the side of the road just up from the church. You could see the daylight through the slats in the cabin. Light bulb hanging on a string. Cast iron pots that she cooked out of. But she could fry up some fried okra and Kaneka sausage. That was the best you ever had. Didn't have a whole lot, but what she had, she was willing to be generous with. Impacted my life. Met my need. Made me love Jesus even more. You can Others' mentality, thinking about others, being willing to be used in time, talent, and treasure. No one claimed that anything belonged to him. Everyone understood, and they were taught, all that I am, all that I have, God is yours, time, talent, and treasure. Luke also tells us when they shared, all the time. Verse 34 and 35, whenever anyone had need. As the need arose, then they were willing to step up and meet their need. He tells us what they shared, everything. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. So with that mindset that God's the owner, I'm a steward, we we live with open palms. We, We hold on to our possessions, our stuff, loosely. But we hold on to the gospel tightly. Therefore, when we realize it came from God, when we realize we're managing it for his glory, when he asks us to give, then we're more willing to give. That's why some of those who had land and possessions were willing to sell it off and bring it to the apostles to distribute as they understood the needs because they were holding worldly things that will fade away loosely. Now, the good news is God doesn't call all of us to go sell everything we have and bring the money to the church and lay it at the feet of the pastors. He doesn't. But there are some that God's called to do that Many of them are serving globally through the International Mission Board. That they literally sold off most of their material possessions, had a few crates in order to travel overseas, and understood that anything that I give up for Jesus is worth it. Anything God asked me to give that he gave me first is worth it if I'm able to point others to Jesus and minister in his love. The type of generosity he wants us to see requires not only holding loosely earthly possessions, but having a heart of compassion toward one another. Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. We must be involved in people's lives if we're going to know where the needs are. In the hallways, how are you? I'm fine. Gathering for worship. How was your week? Good. And there's a lot of lying that goes on in church life every Sunday. Not everybody's fine and not everybody's good. In fact, a lot of us have needs. You're not going to get it in the hallway. You're not going to get it one hour on Sunday morning. That's why life group is so, so important. It doesn't mean that everybody in life group spills out all the stuff in their life. It doesn't mean, that's not what it means. But what it does mean is you get to know them by name. You get to know a little bit about where they've been and where they are. You get to know a little bit about their family. And when real needs arise, that's their people. 
And they go to their people and they share that need. And you know what God does in their people? Those life groups rally. They rally in prayer and they rally in, in resource many times. Many times we never hear in the front office of the church needs that are being met because life groups have rallied already to meet those needs. And there are times, particularly the holidays, that, that people have been blessed and they want to be a blessing to others. They don't know where the needs are. And there are times that they give above and beyond toward benevolence. And they just say, as pastors, as people have needs, we, we trust you to be able to distribute to our congregation that we don't know. And that happens all the time. And I'm very thankful that you're a generous congregation and we can be generous to people and help meet those needs. And, and so very thankful that, to know that when God's grace is at work, then generosity is overflowing. I'm very thankful for a congregation that historically values genera- generosity over greed. A few things come to mind, not just within the local body, but you, you do okay. You do a pretty good job loving on one another and helping rally to meet needs. But there was a time not many, too many years ago that we heard about a Christian family in India and their little boy was going to die unless he had a liver transplant. You know who funded that? You did. There was a time locally that, that one of our young adults needed a kidney transplant and it was going to cost the family more money than they had. You know who helped make up the difference? You did. There are a whole lot of kids back at Christmas that wouldn't have had Christmas without the generosity of Shelby Baptist Association. You know who played a big part of that? You did. There's a school that we had information that there would be kids that, that really were, had limited means and, and, and were struggling, and, and we could help be a blessing and make those kids' Christmas a whole lot better. You know help me, who helped meet that need? You did. On and on we can go about the heartbeat of generosity, but that heartbeat of generosity grows from a gospel identity and an other's mentality. Number three, we have a living example in a man called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Grace-filled generosity. Hey, the early church had some rich people in it. And the Bible does not say there was no rich people among the first Christians. Rather, what it does say, there was not a person in need among them. And that's because of the diverse group that those who had enough and maybe more when those didn't have enough and had a need, that need was met inside the body of Christ. That's the beauty of the people of God that overflow with generosity. The members took care of one another and the wealthy, even those who could and and felt prompted to do so, sold property in order to ensure that reality of needs being met. Wasn't a command. They did it willingly. Barnabas was not commanded to do what he did, but he had the ability to sell and bring the proceeds and place it at the feet of his spiritual leaders and say, I know there's people in this congregation who have needs. God's blessed me. I don't need this, and I want it to go to be a blessing of meeting needs of others. If you have more than you need, you need to see that as a blessing on one hand and a responsibility on the other. God has gifted you, but you're accountable for what you do with the resources that he's given you. He's given you what he has, not just so we can grow fat and happy and boast about how much we have, but it's that you can be a resource in his kingdom for his glory. 
Scripture doesn't teach that you should necessarily sell it all, like I said, but here's what Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 17. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who God richly provides us with all things to enjoy, not a sin to enjoy what you have. Instruct them to do what is good to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as good as foundation of the, for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. Barnabas did an act of generosity that was compelled by the grace of God in his life. Now, Dr. Luke introduces Barnabas here. He's mentioned 23 times in the book of Acts. He becomes a significant encourager and refresher. But after uh, this afternoon, sometimes read the beginning verses of chapter 5. Starts with a contrast word, but. Barnabas, grace-filled generosity. But there were a couple of others that were hypocritical in their giving. Gave the appearance that they did just what Barnabas did, but they lied, and they kept some for themselves. God didn't ask them to do that. He wouldn't care if they kept it for themselves, some of it, and gave some away, but they lied about it to give the appearance that, hey, we're like Barnabas. We're generous, filled with grace. No, they weren't. Here's the takeaways for us today. Where in your life is there struggle and tension about generosity? Time, talent, treasure. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you toward greater generosity. And it starts with this move. All that I have and all that I am is by your grace. It's yours. Help me to know how to invest time, talent, and treasure daily for your glory. Take that challenge and see what the Holy Spirit will do as you take that step forward to grow more like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to have clarity in what your Spirit is saying. Grow us in generosity to love you and love others because we've first been loved. Help us to be reminded, Father, of our identity in Christ, that gospel identity. Help us to be obedient and esteeming others more significant than ourselves and, and having a others mentality that Jesus had. And Father, help us to be obedient with grace-filled generosity, knowing that we don't have to have an abundance to be generous, but just a willingness to be used. And whatever allotment of time, talent, and treasure you've given us, may we be faithful to present it to you daily. And Father, magnify your name and exalt our Savior and draw others to him as we grow as helpers who indeed give generously. We love you. Thank you for a love that is steadfast toward us. Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you, Father, that you say, I'm going to complete what I started. 
And you're going to make us more like Jesus. Continue that good work today. Now, Father, as we sing this final song, it's time for us to say back to you what our response is going to be. May we say, here, my Lord, use me. All of me. It's yours. Show me how to invest for your glory. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will speak and that we'll hear in Jesus' name. Amen.